Hello, and welcome to Small Black Birds. I'm AJ, and in this episode, you will hear stories about three real-life trailblazers. People who, when faced with life's bumps, forged their own path, sometimes at great personal sacrifice, but found success and fame on their own terms. The stories of Brittany Howard, Rye Cooter, and Charlie Parkhurst prove that when life doesn't go as planned, it's still possible to figure it out on the go. They serve as a reminder that pursuing your own path where one did not exist before doesn't happen all at once, but by one courageous action at a time. Brittany Howard's story is up first. And I'm here with Brittany of the Alabama Shakes to tell us about her Bonnaroo experience. So Brittany, what was it like being on stage? Well. I don't know about the people in the audience. I had like a, a revelation up there on stage. I had a very, it was very spiritual. And what was that? Well, when I got to perform on, on a Bonnaroo stage the first time, I've never been to Bonnaroo because I've always had to work. Before jamming with Prince and Paul McCartney and touring the world as the front woman for the genre-bending Grammy award-winning Alabama Shakes, Brittany Howard had paid her dues. Along with resume building stops at Cracker Barrel and delivering mail to neighboring farms in northern Alabama, where she grew up, Howard worked as a porter, a position requiring driving a truck long distance and picking up roadkill. Unglamorous as it was, the job came with a soundtrack. Out on the road, the truck's radio picked up country music and classic rock stations, and she started hearing sonic connections to the doo-wop and R&B she grew up with at her parents' house. Inspired by childhood memories and the scenic landscapes on the back roads of her native Alabama, Howard jotted down lines and phrases in a notebook. I just like anything that made me feel any type of way. If I wanted to dance, it made me want to cry. I'm like, I'm into that because mm-hmm. it was something sincere that I was listening to. And that's what I digested. That's what I learned uh, how to make music from. She would later transform those lines into lyrics and from lyrics into songs that would propel Howard and her bandmates from rocking clubs in Decatur, Alabama to international stardom and make Howard one of the most recognizable lead singers in the music industry. But even after performing at the White House and scoring a number one album, Howard stayed close to her roots. Born and raised in Athens, Alabama, she lived with her parents and her sister Jamie in a junkyard that her family operated. When we were growing up, you know, I grew up in a trailer park in Athens, Alabama. We didn't have a lot, but my mom made our house look like a home. Singing and dancing were free, Howard's dad used to say, and music making was less trouble than building a playhouse out of old broke down cars like her sister once did. Jamie, who was four years older and played the piano and guitar, taught Howard how to write poetry, to draw, and how to transform the mundane into the extraordinary. My sister was a genius. She was just a creative person all around. And when I came into the world, my sister kind of took me by my hand and was like, okay, you know, our family didn't have a lot of money, but this is how you have fun and just showed me how to use my imagination, how to be creative. But when Howard was nine, Jamie died of retinoblastoma, a form of eye cancer. Born with the same condition, Howard is partially blind in one eye as a result of treatment she received as a child. I was also born with retinoblastoma. They caught mine in time because it was years later. And I was fine, but it left me like blind in one eye. Despite being just four years younger, the difference was enough for Howard to benefit from advancements in treatment that were unavailable to her sister. It's a cancer that starts in your eye, behind your retina. My father had it, and then my sister had it. And when I was a baby, I had it, but 
technology was different. You know, my, me and my sister were only four years apart, but in those four years, the technology grew so that, you know, I'm still here. Devastated by Jamie's death, Howard and her family struggled to cope. Her parents soon divorced, and Howard, feeling isolated and angry, retreated to her bedroom. I think it took me a long time to be able to say her name, my sister's name, and my family too, because it took us a long time to grieve that or to know how to grieve that, because in my household, we didn't go to therapy. That wasn't, we didn't really talk about our feelings. That wasn't something um, we, they knew how to do, my parents knew how to do. Eventually, she picked up her sister's guitar and taught herself how to play, finishing the training her sister had started when they were kids. In school, she met other musicians and started writing songs saturated with the different sounds and styles she remembers hearing at her parents' house and on those long drives of the back roads of northern Alabama. In 2019, Howard released her debut solo album, which she named after her sister Jamie. The album is more personal than her previous work, touching on issues like growing up as a child of an interracial couple in Alabama, her evolving views on faith, and her recent marriage. Howard said the album isn't about her sister, but she wanted to acknowledge Jamie's role in helping her realize her own dreams. My sister would show me how to use my imagination, and that was, I mean, that was everything. Next up, let's hear about Ry Cooter. Actually, for quite a long time, jazz was a music that white people didn't like or didn't trust or, or were afraid of. Uh, it was hard for a lot of people, let's say like Duke Ellington. Count Basie became very famous and respected, but uh, for every one of those guys, you could count on the fingers of one hand, there might have been really dozens of, of talented band leaders or players who never were known. They never got the opportunity to work. And uh, they weren't recorded enough, or they didn't have, they couldn't get out and be seen, you know, being black and all. You know, it's a problem that we have in the United States. Racism is a, you know, I guess it'll always be there. Many musicians dedicate themselves to mastering a particular instrument or style, and with hard work and a little luck, dream of big paydays, adoring fans, and all the other accoutrements we've come to expect from popular artists. And then there is Ry Cooter, a Grammy award-winning guitar player who spent most of his 50-year career outside the public spotlight. Not because commercial success wasn't available to this California son, but because he spent his talent shining a light on what is happening all around us. Cooter doesn't just play the guitar, but possesses a chameleon-like talent for revealing the hidden notes and sounds of virtually every string instrument. Amazingly, he was mostly self-taught, having spent much of his youth indoors, listening to records and playing the six-string Martin guitar his parents bought him after a childhood accident with a knife left him blind in one eye. His solo explorations of the roots of rock and world music are legendary, resurrecting both known and obscure songs from so many different styles, including country, blues, folk music, R&B, Tex-Mex, Calypso, and early rock and roll classics. In American music, everything in the end gets pretty close together. You have gospel, and you have country music, and blues, and jazz, and there's a thread always, which is just the people, you know, that, that links all these styles. So it's not hard for me to see that. Sometimes people think it's just being eclectic or somebody who grabs at this and that, but, but for us, it's, it's normal enough. Some of his finest recordings are movie scores for films, including The Border and Paris, Texas, that build western landscapes in your imagination with his haunting slide guitar that takes on a character all of its own. What, what happens is people see more than they hear. 
ultimately, I believe. That's why they all love and remember what they see on the big screen, movies, you see? And I discovered that the music that I was doing for movies was being illustrated by the film. In other words, one was complementary to the other. It was creating a new whole, like a new kind of, uh, of entity, an illustrated piece of music, if you wanted to look at it that way. It's providing a context for the music that hadn't existed before. People said, wow, Raikou music's a little strange for me. I don't know. I don't understand it. But then you put it up against some images, and if the images reveal a certain, it's almost subliminally, a certain quality that the music has. Do you know what I mean? In addition to his American music bona fides, Cooter traveled to Cuba to play with a group of aging musicians who had thrived in pre-Castro Cuba, but had little exposure outside of their homeland. The resulting album, Buno Vista Social Club, was a platinum-selling smash hit that reignited interest for Cuban and Latin American music. It's a kind of, um, it's a kind of a mix of, of archaic European-based dance music, 19th century, and this African rhythmic sort of pulse that they combine these two musical ideas together in the most amazing way. And they sing all these beautiful songs, and I just love beautiful songs. And they not only do it well, but they do it with a kind of a, of a mysterious sort of, there's a sort of a grace that they have as people, that they dance, that they move the way they are with each other, and it's, it's just something that you, it calls to you. In 2005, Cuda released Chavez Ravine, an ambitious concept album about the disappearance of Los Angeles' cultural history as a result of gentrification. It tells the story about a working-class Mexican-American community demolished to make way for the arrival of the Major League Baseball Stadium. After you get to the promised land, the promises are broken one by one, and it's, it's pretty much true, I guess, you know. Uh, but that's the price we pay for having the kind of society we have, you know. It's just a... I don't know what else to say about it. Having been all over the place, I like living here the best, and I guess for me, you know, well, for a white person with money, it's all right. Let's just put it that way. I wouldn't want to be other than a middle-class white person living in L.A. It might get a little tough. In early 2011, Cuda wrote the song No Banker Left Behind after being taken by a headline about Wall Street bankers who profited from the bank bailouts and economic crisis. Bittersweet like a blues tune or Depression-era ballad, you won't know whether to laugh or cry when Rye sings about fat cat bankers drinking champagne as they hightail it out of town. While Cooter has still not been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it's hard to imagine he notices the slight. He continues to play live music, sharing stories from his 50 years on the road, and performing with his son, who shares his father's musical talents. Cooter's gift to the world are not just his eclectic recordings, but an invitation to dig deeper, question everything, and not be afraid to do it your own way. I think that people want to go out from themselves. It's a natural thing. You know, why read a book otherwise? Why go see a foreign film? You want to see what's going on. It's natural curiosity, you know. Our final story is all about Charlie Parkhurst. California in the early 1850s bustled with gold fever. The rewards were many for stagecoach drivers who risked their lives hauling shipments of gold across the Sierra Mountains, along with wealthy merchants commuting between Nevada's mining towns and California's big cities. But so was the risk. The trail stagecoach traveled also served as hunting grounds for armed bandits who hoped to make off with an easy payday from passengers who valued their lives more than their purse. The stagecoaches were driven by skilled and fearless men who had to control four or six wild-eye horses on rough and bruising steep mountain trails. These rugged men developed a reputation for their speed and ability to handle a whip and a gun, 
while transporting passengers and cargo across dangerous terrain, with some even achieving a level of fame that reached audiences back east. One of the most celebrated whips of the day was Charlie Parkhurst. Parkhurst was well known in California's gold country as a hard-drinking driver who didn't talk much but got results. Parkhurst earned that hard-nosed reputation after vowing revenge on a bandit named Sugarfoot who had held up Parkhurst's coach and made off with the passengers' valuables. The second time Sugarfoot encountered Parkhurst was his last, as Parkhurst shot and killed him as promised. But before he died, the story goes, Sugarfoot crawled back to a miner's cabin to tell others he had been shot by One-Eyed Charlie. The story of One-Eyed Charlie, who wore a black patch over the left eye lost after being kicked in the face by a horse, would have been little more than an interesting footnote in the history of the West had it not been for one thing. Charlie Parkhurst was a woman. A rough and tumble of a read of man in those California days. Her work hard, play hard was the rule. Boy, how Charlie played. Drink the grand and poker, but with women didn't bother. And drinking far into the night, each one like the other. Her secret stayed hidden until her death in 1879, when the Sacramento Bee published her obituary, which described her as one of the most expert manipulators of the reins who ever sat on the box of a coach, and revealed that the doctor performing her autopsy had made the discovery. Charlie, it turned out, had been short for Charlotte. Legend has it she was abandoned by her parents at a young age, and was sent to live in an orphanage from which she later escaped dressed as a boy. The trick worked so well, she decided to keep it going after she moved west. While this account is more myth than truth, it does spark the imagination to wonder what circumstances led Parkhurst to forge a new identity that she maintained until her death. After a 30-year career, Parkhurst retired from driving to run a stage station and a ranch in Santa Cruz County, where she moonlighted as a lumberjack during the winter months. But that's not where her story ends. In 1868, the name Charles Parkhurst appeared on the official Santa Cruz County list of registered voters in that year's presidential election. While it was not recognized at the time or for many years after, Parkhurst is now considered to have been the first known woman to vote in a presidential election in American history. Thank you for listening to Small Black Birds. I started this limited series podcast to share remarkable stories about people who are partially sighted. After a detached retina took the eyesight in my left eye, I feared losing the vision in my other eye. My doctor warned me that if I ever saw floaters or these black dots, they could indicate problems with my right eye. For months, I dreaded the thought of seeing those black dots and what it would mean. Then one day while I was at the park, I looked up at a clear sky and saw a large group of black dots. I immediately thought the worst, but then suddenly, the black dots came into focus and morphed into a flock of small black birds that simply flew away. I was overcome with relief. Small black birds represents a fresh start or a second chance, and I hope you feel inspired as much as I am by these incredible people and their stories. Thank you for listening to Small Black Birds. 
contact me at smallblackbirdspodcast at gmail.com or at smallblackbirds on Twitter. Stay safe and talk with you soon.